heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey everybody, welcome to Wine Crush Podcast. This is kind of a special edition. We're uh, getting towards the end of season five, episode 17, but we are doing our first reboot of the podcast. So we have Janie Brooks back with us. She was season one, episode one, speaker one. (laughs) And so, you know, kind of, I'm so sorry. I've used you as a guinea pig now twice, but this is going to be great. Though so many things have changed in five years. And uh, we brought Chris Williams today with Janie, too, who is the head winemaker and has been around since, like, almost day one, pretty close to the beginning. So we're going to kind of restart with your story, because I think that is such an important piece of who Brooks is and kind of where Brooks has gone. And um, I do want to hear from Chris and how he kind of got into this whole mix of wine. So welcome, Janie. Um, welcome, Chris. I know you're super stoked to be here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we're happy to be here. Yes. So let's talk about kind of the origination of Brooks and kind of, you know, your brother, who was the one that kind of started the whole, well, he was the one that started the whole thing and had this great idea of what wine should be. And you've stepped in. I have. (laughs) Yeah. So my brother, my brother and I actually grew up in Portland, so not too far from the Willamette Valley. And he ended up going to college here um, at Linfield and nothing to do with wine, though, and graduated and didn't know what he wanted to do for a living. So he, Bought a one-way ticket to Europe and would work different jobs until he could earn enough money to travel and go back to different jobs. And he ended up working six harvests in Beaujolais. He got married while he was over there and had a baby and decided it was time to come back to the United States to raise his family. So he came back to Portland and immediately got a job in the Willamette Valley at Willa Kenzie as their vineyard manager and then became their assistant winemaker. And that is where he started Brooks. And that is where he met Chris. I love the idea of being able to buy a one-way ticket to Europe and just figuring it out. I'm too big of a chicken, and I'm just too damn old at this point in time to do that. But I I love that kind of that spirit of just kind of flying by the seat of your pants and really not where the world's going to take you and then finding, well, your passion, I guess. And that's more or less what happened is he got over there and got into the wine industry and had, you know, had his life and then came back. So Chris, how did you come into the mix? Because I've heard the stories, but you know, I- yeah, I was I was definitely a, a character of happenstance. Um, I had met Jimmy through old Motoguzi motorcycles. Uh, at the time, I was a stay-at-home dad with a newborn and a one-year-old, just kind of selling motorcycle parts. And I got a call from Jimmy one day, and just kind of sprung into a friendship. He ended up having me come out and do a little bit of work with him at Willa Kinsey for a couple of wine club events. And then I came out and started about a month before Harvest in 2000 and worked through Harvest with him. So I, I fell into the industry, into something that I didn't know anything about, but quickly grew to understand that I really enjoyed it. It's, um, it's a very unique industry. And especially at that point in time, it was so young. Like Willa Kenzie was kind of, you know, kind of on the forefront of kind of the wine industry out here, if I understood correctly. And then Jimmy had kind of this whole different idea of what he wanted to do with wine, with the Riesling and not just Pinot, if I understood that piece of the story right. Correct? Yeah, that was his, 
the varietal he was most passionate about pursuing in Oregon because it was one of the first varietals grown here. It just, it's hard to grow and it's hard to sell. So, and it's a very misunderstood varietal as we know, Um, but he was really committed to restoring the reputation of Riesling, especially dry in Oregon, and that you could do this in this cool climate. Did he spend some time like in the kind of the part of Europe that really did a lot with Riesling? Is that like Germany, Austria, the, I don't even know what that means. Okay, there you go. Is that where, did he spend time over there as well? He did. I mean, he definitely traveled to those regions, but it was, you know, he was a little bit of a love to be the underdog. And I think when he got over here and, and, and an idealist, he saw that people actually weren't committed to making dry Riesling when he knew that it could be made really well here. He just decided to kind of go against the grain of what everybody else was doing with Pinot Gris and really focus the brand on Riesling. Well, I love it. Riesling is one of my favorite white wines, and I love being neighbors to Brooks because I get to pop up there and, and grab new things that are coming across the the tasting flights. And we're actually drinking um, a sparkling Riesling, which is very unique, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But thank you for bringing that and popping the bottle. It was so quiet. It was a little bit <laughs> underwhelming because it really should have put a hole in the ceiling, but you know, that's for another day, right? He wanted to. I know. I know. I saw it in his eyes, but you know, he was being kind. Let's uh let's get back to kind of this story with Jimmy and kind of where he kind of went from there. So when did he actually establish Brooks? 1998 was his first vintage with two wines, a, a Riesling and a Pinot Noir. So was he still working at Willa Kenzie at that point in time and just kind of had a little side hustle that was going to be his thing? Yep. He was limited to 300 cases a year mm-hmm. while he was there, but he was able to do it kind of in his off hours and make wine there. And then... He was consulting with Mo Mamtazi, who had just planted a biodynamic vineyard in the McMinnville foothills, and they shared a very common interest in biodynamic farming. And Jimmy was consulting with him and ended up leaving Willie Kenzie to go work at Mesara and be their head winemaker and manage their vineyards, and which gave him a lot more freedom, obviously, with the farming because it was biodynamic and then also with his brand in terms of how many cases he made. So let's kind of go down the rabbit hole a little bit to biodynamics, um, because I didn't realize he was doing biodynamics from the beginning, and it's kind of its own thing. And can you explain it? Because not everybody knows what biodynamics is, and it's a little woo-woo, depending on how you want to look at it, but very interesting. <laughs> not woo-woo. <laughs> well, no? no? No, I looked at him, and he's like, I'm not doing it. Okay, <laughs> so this is, this is my elevator pitch for biodynamics. It's, it's not, you know, probably is detailed and interesting as it should be, but um, I like to explain it that it is organics plus. So everything you do with organic farming and and everything you don't do with organic farming to have an organic product, we do additional things in the vineyard. There's nine different preparations that we utilize that we apply to the soil or the vines themselves or our compost pile that help to restore all the nutrients for the plant and to, and to grow better fruit at the end of the day. So those are additional things that we do on top of being organic. And then the second component of biodynamics is where it gets a little voodoo, mystical, whatnot. Woo-woo. Woo-woo is the, um, is the timing. Um, so it all f- falls under a biodynamic calendar and the cycles of the moon and the phases of the moon. Um, when we take action or don't take action in the vineyard, and then it all applies to the winery as well. Have you noticed a big difference in the in the grapes? Because I know you've been running a little experiment even with like the 
with your own vineyard, but I think your other vineyards that you are managing or looking after have kind of started switching over to this. And has there been a difference in what you see in the fruit? Early on, we started in the our what is now our estate in the Riesling section back in 2002. After Jimmy passed away, it had only been a couple of years that we had been farming that four acres, but we had a one acre block that went to someone else that wasn't interested in it. So we had a good control block right next to our four acres. And I would say on the third year, you started to see a big difference in just kind of the health and look of the plant. And then compared to that control block, we picked at the same exact time. Nobody dropped any fruit that year. It was really basic fruit set. Our four acres ended up at about a ton higher per acre than the lower one block did, which I mean, is is good that you get a little bit more fruit. It wasn't really heavy. I think it was two and a half as opposed to one and a half on the lower block. But the uh, ripeness of the fruit was actually past what those plants that were holding less fruit were holding. So I had better ripening flavor. I had a little bit more sugar. I think I had a brick, brick and a half higher sugar. My acidity was very similar. I didn't have much drop or anything else. So I could really tell by about the third year that it was making a difference on that four acres of Riesling and the health of the plant and how much it allowed it to carry and still ripen completely. We're definitely not young pickers. We like to pick when things are ripe and they have a lot of flavor. We don't try to base our picking based off of numbers. So it's really important to get good physiological ripening. It's so interesting because it's, I mean, there's cow horns and there's planting and like certain patterns that they need to be like buried in and compost and stuff. I mean, there's, if you have not looked up biodynamics, you really, you guys have a great video on your website or you did last time I looked that kind of explained it and kind of showed the whole process. And it's interesting to me that that was being utilized. I didn't know that Mo was doing that on his vineyards and I didn't really realize that that's where Jimmy had picked it up. He, he actually introduced it to him. Oh, really? And, and he started, he helped start the original group that Andrew Lord came out to Maestra with Doug Tunnell and Lynn Penner-Ash and everybody that originally back in 01 first started looking into being interested of doing it in the Valley. So I would say Jimmy was very instrumental in bringing it here. So one, a true pioneer of that. Uh, in our Valley, for sure. That's amazing. I see. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was much more, a com more common farming practice in Europe which is where he first found out about it, learned about it too. So when he came back here again, why isn't everybody doing this? Everybody needs to be doing this. Oh, Jimmy. So, so many cool things that have come out of that. Okay. So now he's at Moe's. He's out in the McMinnville foothills. He's making a little bit more wine. He's making Riesling and Pinot. So where does the story then go from there? When does it become just Brooks? Oh, when does it just become, oh, well, not for a while. So while he was at Mamtazi on September 4th of 2004, he had an aortic dissection and unfortunately passed away very suddenly while he was head winemaker for both Mesara and Brooks. And I got up to his house from California the night that he passed away. And I was sat down by a whole group of people that I didn't know. And they said that throughout the course of the day, they had figured out who Jimmy was going to buy fruit from. And it was really important to them that we make sure Brooks honors those contracts. So they offered to take the fruit that first year and make the wine and asked me to get involved in the business side. And that's how I met Chris. So all those winemakers were involved in it. So all winemakers that everybody knows in the Valley, right? It was Ponzi and Bergstrom and Patty Green and Steve Dorner from Christum. And Tad Seat's dad. Tad, Tad from Ransom and 
all the great, great, great players, which meant a lot to me. And I, you know, I didn't, first I thought they were all trying to steal our secrets. Um, I had no idea that the wine <laughs> industry was like so, such a community and such a great group of people. So they were very supportive to me through that first vintage. Chris ended up doing all the blends and finishing the wines in 2004. And then Chris called me one day and said, you know, if you want to continue the brand, I'd be interested in coming to be your winemaker. And I remember it vividly. I was standing in my driveway. That was probably our first big turn together um, was to say yes to that. So we went into Custom Crush for four years, and then we moved into our own little place on the top of the Eola Amity Hills. And it is a little place. It it's a just little a little, little shed on the side <laughs> of the road, and it's super With cute. With history. What's that? With great history. What what was the history of it before you guys moved well, it into was, it? It was Hidden Springs Winery, so it was where Don had our planted our estate vineyard, made his wines for many years. I did not know that. And then uh, Sam Tannehill had wine up there. He went, he came in when he started A to Z, kind of used that as a shuffling spot. And, and Cuneo, was, Gino Cuneo some, was up there for a long yeah, and time. Gino Cuneo was up there before that, I think. Yowza, I had no idea, and mm-hmm. I literally live like a mile away. I just assumed it was like somebody's little tractor shed. Yeah, that no, it was a, was a, a prune drying. drying facility, so it had a big side chute that pushed air through it, and they had racks or metal in the ground that the racks ran on, and they would have big chutes that they'd just blow air through to drive prunes on the hill because it was Brooks. Brooks prunes. Oh, there Brooks we go. Plums. Plums. <laughs> plums. plums. Yes, and they are delicious. They are not good infused in vodka, though. Just from experience, <laughs> it is not a good idea. Yes, you can ask my poor Thanks. husband. Yes. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. And now John Grishow, and um, actually we just interviewed Vincent, Vincent who's up there, there as well. Fritchie, right? I think that's his last name and how you say it, because I have a tendency to butcher names. So that one I got a lesson on. Okay. And we have Varnum on the hill now. Yes. Yeah. Right next to them. So It's really turned into a really great little Mecca up on Eola Hills. And I mean, I think that's... Eola Hills for a long time was very overlooked because everything was really focused on Dundee. And now Eola Hills has become this, I don't know, kind of the it place in the valley um, for people to come and visit. And you guys were kind of one of the pioneers on the hill. And I to grow grapes, right? Yeah. I mean, we get the most benefit from the winds that come off the Pacific Ocean through that Van Duzer corridor. And I think that's one of the reasons our area has such a great reputation because you find just higher acid wines. It's cooler. It's a cooler microclimate than Dundee and Yamhill Carlton for sure. Yep, absolutely. I want to circle back a little bit towards the collaboration with all the wineries with Brooks and after Jimmy had passed away. You have a lot of um, homage to them around the tasting room. So if you look at the barrel staves around the room, they're all their names are all stamped on there. And you've done some really cool things within the actual tasting room with that as well. Well, they, they had a vision that I am very grateful for because they could have as easily taken the fruit, honored the contracts, and kept the wine for themselves, and Brooks could have gone away. But that was not what they wanted to do. Going back to Jimmy's, you know, ability to, like, make statements and biodynamically farm and support Riesling, they really thought that there was a reason the brand should keep going, which is why they made the the offer to us to be able to make the wine and then give it back to us that first year. And 
I would have been fine either way. Honestly, I wouldn't have known the difference if they would have just asked to shut, keep the fruit and shut it down. I probably would have said, okay. It's definitely changed your life. Yes. Yes, it has. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since you were, account- you were an accountant major or an accountant bookkeeper before. I was an, yeah, I had an accounting degree. I was the exact opposite of Jimmy. I was going to not take a one-way ticket to Europe. I was going to go get a, you know, the highest paying job that I could and I used to joke that, like, my mom could talk about what I was doing at the country club, but she couldn't understand what Jimmy was doing. In hindsight, he was much smarter than I was. Yeah, but I think it takes a yin and a yang to make something, you know, really grow and be so beautiful. And Brooks is, you know, I, there's a lot of Jimmy's spirit with what you guys do still, which is, it's beautiful that, you know, the story's told every time somebody comes to the tasting room and you understand kind of where Brooks's came from and where the where you are now. So you've moved out of the little shed on top of the hill and you've moved in this really beautiful facility on the east side of the hill, southeast. Yes, you guys are on the east side of the hill looking east towards really all the mountains, all of them, like on a beautiful day up there. um, If the weather's right, you can see all of them. And it's really pretty spectacular and stunning. Something that we keep talking about and we always talk about is the beauty of the Oregon wine industry and the camaraderie that comes in this. And I think, you know, the story of Brooks and kind of Jimmy's passing and kind of where you've gone is just such a beautiful kind of example of what that is and where the industry has gone. So congratulations to you both for such a beautiful job on everything. Since we spoke five years ago, things have changed fairly significantly in the fact that, you know, we've had COVID and you've had some changes at the tasting room, but you've also done some really amazing things with the winery and the vineyard itself. I want to talk about your B Corp and what that means and what that is, and then go into the 1% for the planet, because I think those are huge staples and marks of what Brooks mindset is. Yeah. And part of what you hit on too, Heidi, was the Chris and I have had a very intentional desire to preserve as much of Jimmy's influence in the winery. So, you know, most of the labels were his. We still focus on Riesling and biodynamic farming. And that, you know, with him being the leader in that, my mind was like, what can I do next to kind of further that statement about what's important to us and make sure the whole world knows. And a lot of wineries in the Valley were starting to become B Corp certified. And so I was like, oh, I should look and see what that is. And very grateful that we're now certified and just got recertified, but there's 4,500 of them in the world. 20 of them are wineries and half of those are here in the Willamette Valley. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's very stringent. It's not, you just fill out an application and send it in. No, it is a very difficult process to get through, but it also, every step of the way has made us a better business. Whether it's going from no handbook to having a handbook to paid holidays, a lot of stuff on the benefit and compensation side, it's important. But it also covers environment and what you're doing for the environment, which we already have that nailed because of biodynamics. But it looks at your supply chain and, you know, your carbon footprint and how far are you sourcing things and what are those companies like? Are they are they minority owned? Are they female owned? Are they, you know, local or not local? So there's a lot of different components to it. But at the end of the day, we're able to say that we use our business as a force for good and not just for profit. It goes into your vendors, too. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it goes all the way down the chain. And it's, like I said, it's not just a couple questions that you have to check the boxes. I mean, there's quite the handbook, handout, the things that are expected of the company. Can you maybe define it just a little bit more? Because I, I know when I learned about B Corp from A to Z years ago, mm-hmm. I'm like, 
is it because they like bees? I'm like, I just don't understand. <laughs> I just don't understand, you know? And so it's, I think it's a confusing thing because it is so limited on so many companies being certified that way. Most people don't know what a B Corp is. Yeah. Well, it's so, like I mentioned, it looks at five different components. It looks at your governance structure and your transparency. It looks at your suppliers. It looks at your benefits and how you treat your team. It looks how you treat your environment. And you go through a very rigorous, I think it just took f- four of us about 120 hours apiece to get through the wow. recertification process. So you're answering everything from what's the wage of your highest employee to your lowest employee and what's that gap. And the smaller that gap is, the more points that you get. So there's a lot of different criteria that you have to get evaluated on in order. And you have to hit a certain benchmark, a number of points, before you'll even be considered. More or less, it just means that you are a good company doing good things from top to bottom and inside out. Yes. More or less. Yes. For the environment, for your Your team, for everything. Mm -hmm. So B stands for beneficial. There we go. (laughs) I did not know that until just now. Thanks, Chris, for the the add-in. Yeah, it's a huge thing. So, you know, I know there's several of them in the Valley. You know, I think Columbia is one, A to Z. I don't even know who else. Well, winery-wise, Winderly, Blosser. Portland has the biggest community of B Corps in the country. That's really not surprising. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rogue Creamery, Tillamook. So there's all sorts of industries too. That's awesome. So let's transition into 1% for the planet because I really don't know what goes into this at all. So you're going to have to like educate from start to finish. Sure. And that's a fun one. Um, so 1% for the planet was started by Yvonne Chenard, who founded Patagonia. And his whole concept that was by being on this planet, we are all stripping from this planet, whether we're driving a car, building a house, farming, whatever it may be. And so he thought if everybody could contribute a little bit, which is 1%, that we could put that money to use and make a difference for our environment. And there are so many companies involved in it now. So basically, we end up donating 1% of our revenue to anyone in a network of certified nonprofits that 1% for the planet supports. And we get to pick who our partner is. You could pick 10 nonprofits and change every quarter. We chose to pick one partner and dive in deep. So we've been with the same partner since 2019. That company is called Kiss the Ground, and they are all about regenerative agriculture and teaching it. So they're very educational-based as well as media-based. So, But there's a wide variety. There's everything from getting plastic out of the ocean, like the nonprofits that you can contribute to through 1% are, everybody can find somebody that they would want to give money to. It's so crazy. I mean, it's just, it's, I didn't know any of these things existed. And it's actually really kind of mind blowing to understand, you know, kind of what's out there and what's Mm -hmm. available to be able to be part of. So thank you for, for that explanation. Let's, uh, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about wine because we got lots of wine to talk about. One, I mean, Brooks is known for Riesling. So and I know, Janie, you're super involved in internationally with the Riesling Federation or Foundation. I don't even know the right terminology for that, but I think you were president of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. Yeah. Kind of kind of a big title just to give it a little yeah to. And, I, you know, I don't know if this is, you know, a lot driven by Jimmy still, if this is more Chris's vision. It's a combination of everybody's vision. But let's talk about kind of what you guys are doing, because you don't just make one Riesling, and you don't just make Riesling. You have a lot of things kind of in the bottle that are unique, and you're always expanding. 
The floor is yours, <laughs> Mr. Williams. Well, he's expanding. So uh, I would say the Riesling is definitely still Jimmy's vision. I mean, I love Riesling. It definitely is. I wouldn't do it if I still didn't enjoy it. But the fact that it was meant so much to him is really the reason that we will always do it. And the fact that it's the best grape in the world. But and why is that? Besides that, because it can be anything. Uh, Riesling can be anything from anybody you know, any any individual person you know it could be a Riesling. So, I mean, there's just so many different things that it can, it can be and be so well. Um, I think it does very well in different growing environments. So anywhere from Australia where you're going to get a little bit more warmth to uh, Austria where it's going to be a lot colder. I mean, it does really well in a, a wide range of different growing regions. And it's just, it's a complete balanced wine. And let's take the myth out of it. Cause I mentioned Riesling to people and they're like, oh yeah, we don't drink sweet wine. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well. well you- it's, it's, it's sweet because back, I think early on when Riesling wasn't as well thought of, it was more of a cash crop. So they would overcrop it and then make wine out of it. But the problem with that is you eliminate a little flavor when you overcrop it. So you can get numbers, which you can adjust, but you can't really add flavor. What you can do is leave sugar. And sugar, I think, in our brain, we think of as flavor sometimes. And so in order to kind of make up for the fact that these wines being really dry would have no real character to them, they left sugar in them. So again, it was something that was a little less expensive. It was more of out the door right away, making money for the winery. I mean, I can totally understand why they used to do it that way, but what they did is they took a varietal that was so important in Europe and brought it over here and really kind of messed on it. Messed it up. Yeah. Not not that Germany didn't do the same thing with a lot of their wines. A lot of their wines are sweeter and everybody always thinks of everything that came out of Germany was sweet. No, they kept most of the dry things there because that was the good stuff. That was what the export market, the Americans wanted sweet things, which was probably true. Mm -hmm. So it filled a niche in something that it should have never been put into. So it should have always been respected and been a, a Chardonnay. I mean, nobody would... Yeah. Nobody would <laughs> syrupy sweet a Chardonnay. I don't I I've never had a sweet Chardonnay. Like like a sweet sweet, but I've had some like sweet sweet Riesling to where it's almost syrupy. And Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I mean my mom used to drink that. She used to drink Berenger pink and she used to drink sweet Riesling Blue every Nun. once in a while, huh? Blue Nun. I have no idea. <laughs> I just remember there was a big pink bottle of wine and I'm just like, mm. Yeah, I don't know what that is, but it just, it looks terrible. You know, but as a kid, everything looked terrible. So, you know. But sweet Riesling really can be. I mean, it's of all the Rieslings, a TBA or an ice wine or something like that would be my favorite wines because they have so much acidity to match up with that sugar. I mean, and that's the key point of Riesling is it can be anything, but it has to have a good balance of sugar and acidity to it. I think maybe that's something that people miss too. And I don't know if I've had a sweet Riesling. I don't I don't know if I've really had a sweet Riesling up at Brooks. I know you have sweet pea, but I don't think I, I don't know if I've ever really had that. We're going to have to change that. We're going to have to change that. <laughs> yeah. I know it's one of my mom's best friend's favorite wine. So every time my mom comes out, I usually have a bottle or two of sweet pea for her to take home. Yeah. Cause they, well, they. The best wines we make. I mean, it's just. How many Rieslings do you make on an average year? Different Rieslings. 
we will make anywhere from 15 to 25. And that's crazy. <laughs> so we have currently, I think, 17, around 17 different Riesling sites. So, so are you making individual vineyard Rieslings and then doing some blends? Yeah. Yep. And doing the bubbles. And do, oh, yes, let's speak of the bubbles. We're going to come back to the Riesling and just in general because I love it. But let's talk about these bubbles. I'm not leaving Riesling. No, this bottle will be empty before any of us leave. In fact, my glass is empty now, so I'm going to go ahead and refill it just a little bit. I took these bubbles to Walla Walla with me to a party, a wine party that I did a couple years ago, and it was mind-blowing for people because they're used to, you know, more of like a Chardonnay or more of a Pinot Noir or whatever, but not a sparkling Riesling. So what was the decision and conversation on that? I can only imagine this is sold very well. I think so. Mm Mm-hmm. She wanted bubbles. Yeah, it was my idea, wasn't it? I forgot about that. And it's quite the process. I think people don't realize, I mean, there's two different processes. I mean, I'm sure there's more than that, but there's true champenois style, which is what this is. And then there's carbon infused, which is not what this is. But you also just did a muscat, a sweet muscat? Is that what? No, it's dry. Dry. Bone dry. It's dry. But with Riesling, my idea was if we're going to own the category in the United States of America, then we need to make it in every possible style. And that was just the style we were missing. There you go. (laughs) The Riesling queen has spoken. (laughs) Well, it's delicious. And you invited me up a couple months ago, whenever you, it was right before you released the Muscat and it was really fantastic as well. And I, is that the first of Uh that style as well? First, yeah, that was the first vintage of that wine. Do do other people do a sparkling Muscat though? I've never ever. sweeter style again. But is it sparkling? Not around here. Okay, we'll see that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we, we're looking for uniqueness. <laughs> okay. Well, yes. and, and we're, we put the same energy. You know, we do traditional method. It's definitely more expensive than just doing some type of forest carbonated. But it's so interesting to watch the wines as they're laid down evolve over time. And, you know, we still, we haven't disgorged 100% of any of our Riesling vintages yet. And we're, did we hold back a little bit of Muscat? No. <clears throat> Muscat's just supposed to be fresh and fun and out the door. Yeah. But it's, it's fascinating. And my husband looks at me and he goes, so you let that bottle lay there for 44 months without trying to sell it? I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, because it wasn't ready yet. We have 15s in bottle that have been in bottle for over 70. We're going to look at probably in the next few months, 70, 72, 76 months of tirage. So it's, Wow. So is that going to be a special edition? Yeah, it'll be. I mean- we neck band them so we can kind of play around with them still and really try to find out, you know, is it we, our earliest ones? We did it at 22, I think, in the 15. And then we saved some for 44. And then we'll hold some for 72 to 76. And I mean, it really does change so much in that time that it's fun to play with. Sounds like a great anniversary year thing to do. It sounds like a great <laughs> invitation for Heidi to come up the hill <laughs> and, and help and enjoy all of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's it's fun. It's interesting. It's light. It's fresh. It's fruity. I mean, I love Riesling on so many levels. And I get asked a lot, you know, what my favorite wine is or what my favorite varietal is, or if I'm going to plant grapes at, because I live up on Eola Hills too. And the answer is no, never planting grapes <laughs> um, unless somebody plants them for me and has every indication of taking care of them because I don't want to. But Riesling is always the one that comes to the top. I love a great Riesling or even a Riesling, you know, blend with some of the other whites. And you do have a great wine that's probably one of my very favorite whites in Amicus. And I was so sad when you were out of that last year. I was so <laughs> glad when I saw that come back. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the rest of your lineup. So Riesling obviously is the focus. There's a lot of focus on that. 
but you do lots of other things as well. Yeah, we play with a lot of different whites, a lot of aromatic whites. So we look to Alsace and places like that for, uh, we have some Viognier, we have had made Malone, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc. We have Muscat, Gewürztraminer, an orange Muscat. Three different kinds of Muscat, right? Yeah, three, three, three different kinds of Muscat. So I think that's another one that has a, I mean, at least in my mind, has kind of this ideology of being sweet in most people's minds, but it doesn't have to be sweet. Does really any wine have to be sweet? Like any grape, is it just meant to be a sweet wine? I mean, I know there's a no, gazillion no. different varietals, but- I wouldn't in- say anything has to have sugar. Mm-hmm. So it's all, I mean, it's all personal preference of the winemaker and where he feels that that balance of if that wine has acidity, sometimes there's so much acidity. If you made it super, super bone dry, it's just, it's just as unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. For as, me, it's a gut bomb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's about finding that right spot. With muscat, the muscat isn't really a high acid grape. So you don't really have to worry about getting it absolutely bone dry and being ripping acidity or anything. But I would say a lot of the time, um, muscat is probably swings a little bit more to the sweeter side just because it is so floral and so fruity. So generally, I think as our mind enjoys those flavors and those aromatics and things like that, a little bit of sweetness just works well with it. I just like to make them bone dry because I think it really gives you a sense of disconnect from the nose to the taste, which I kind of find fun for people to experience because you immediately smell it and think it's going to be sweet, but it just has no sugar and no sweetness to it at all, but still has all those same aromatics in the mouth on it. So it's fun. I just think it's a, I don't do a whole lot of that, but I think to me, that's the the one varietal that I like to show to people and say, this is what it can be. And this is what works well. I think there's a big preconceived notion with people when they see that on the the menu. It's just like even with Chardonnay, like, nope, I don't like Chardonnay. So therefore they don't try it. I think Muscat's kind of the same way. So it's kind of fun kind of seeing that you're playing with people's minds just a little bit because there is a disconnect sometimes with certain wines where you smell them, they smell super aromatic, super sweet, but then you taste them, you're like, whoa, that's not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's a good whoa and sometimes it's like a whoa, whoa, yeah. you know, push <laughs> push that baby aside and let's just repour a different glass. <laughs> I love going into your production room and facility when you guys are kind of going through fermentation and and, you know, all that stuff after harvest because there's a different sheet on each. It's like a patchwork <laughs> quilt through there because you do everything in small batches. Yep. You don't do great big batches. And it is. There's a different sheet color for every bin and it's so fun to, to walk through there. I mean, I think of the first time I walked in there, I started to giggle and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? I just didn't understand. And I I think it was you, ex- you know, explained it to me or maybe somebody else. And they're like, well, this is what we do. And so why the small batches? Because, I mean, you're a bigger winery. I mean, for the area, you are kind of, you know, on the above medium side for sure, but you like to do things in small lots. It just helps us in blending towards the end. It makes it less necessary to have to adjust your numbers on a lot. When you're fermenting a big, huge lot, you really want it to end up being a more complete wine because if you have only so many big lots, you don't have a lot of blending opportunity. We work more along the lines of if we put everything into really small lots, even if that individual bin isn't necessarily a complete wine on its own. It holds a portion of a complete wine. And so with 120, 130 different bins, we have plenty of 
opportunity to put things together that we feel make complete wines without along those lines of biodynamic without messing with the wines in the winery. Is there really 130 bins in there? Yeah. Wow. Actually, we have about 120 macros and then we have another 16 stainless. That's so crazy. That's so much to keep track of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it's the right way. Yes. Like we just for, for us. I mean, yeah. it definitely just works. It works with our mentality of what we want to do and it's just nice having small things that, you know, you can kind of be more intimate with when you have big fermentations, you're not necessarily punching them down as much because you're doing more pump overs because they're giant caps and the ability with one ton, everybody gets in. We got six people doing punch downs and everybody's getting in and tasting. And I just feel you get, get to know fermentations better on a smaller level like that, especially for the interns that come in, which is important for them to see. They got this big giant tank that they get to taste six of, and it's like, it's just not the same. You look at a hundred different things, it's crazy how different so many of them are. I uh, Let's talk about interns for a second. I, I think it was two years ago, maybe it was three years ago. I walked in and there was, I don't know, six interns and Heather all sitting around a bucket peeling uh-huh. in the shriveled up grapes <laughs> yeah. off this Sorry, and they asked yeah, yeah. <laughs> <It's not good laughs> yes. and they asked if I wanted to join and I'm like I looked at what they're doing I'm like there's no way I no I like y'all but no I'm going <laughs> I'm going home so I want to know what that is because I mean they kind of explained it to me did it ever turn into anything because I love the experimentation because I mean that's I mean Spell that's that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that oh, note, did I, I have that, that wine? <laughs> skip, skip to the next. Skip to the next. Question. Apparently, that didn't didn't turn into anything, but it was a great scene to walk in and see all these guys doing this. So, so okay, let's talk Pinot. Since we're not talking about that, let's talk Pinot. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. I mean, I think that's part of the wine industry is experimenting and trying new things, and sometimes they work amazing, and sometimes it was a great idea that just didn't really go anywhere. And that, so now we're going to talk about Pinot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I think there was a lot of Harry Potter books going on, I think, um, during that whole series too. So, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, those were all my workers that weren't downstairs helping me do stuff. <laughs> God. So there's a little animosity. grapes around at each other and laughing. <laughs> but that's part of the intern experience, right? I mean, you're... Maybe not throwing grapes at each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, <you laughs> no, know. that's not part of it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. I don't know. There's a dartboard downstairs, and I've seen other things downstairs, too. Yeah. So Play one game of darts a yes, day. Actually, I, sometimes two. Yeah, I love it. I've been around sometimes. They're, they get kind of competitive. Well, he's kicking my ass. I can't beat him anymore. It's like Davin <laughs> was before, and he would just kill both of us. And so it was like me and Derek were always competing for second. <laughs> now Derek just beats me all the time. It's like well, you need to get lessons. I'm I sure it must be those lessons I paid for for Derek. <laughs> just don't care. Some days. I think with any work environment, you need to have kind of those outlets where you're doing something fun and you can kind of like stop the the madness for even just a few seconds. And I mean, the podcast is kind of that for us. We drink wine and talk to cool people and laugh and cuss and do whatever it is that we feel like, you know, 
needs to happen at that time. And one cuss word this entire. I did say hell, and you I, said ass. Yes, thank you, Jamie, for keeping track. <laughs> those aren't cuss words. Yes. I'm usually the biggest sailor, and I'm I've been oh, so no. far so good. Yeah, those are both words you can say on TV. I know. Usually, I'm I have a tendency to be the one with a foul mouth and end up with f bombs and shit. It's probably too. one of my favorite words. I think it's the dairy <laughs> farmer in me. It's just the smell of money and and part of life. <laughs> so. Taught Georgia fuck now. She uses it regularly. <laughs> Who? My daughter. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. My daughter spelled it yeah, for right. the, the daycare provider at three and <laughs> told her how to use it in a sentence. And so very proud mom moment on that one. So, you know, go Heidi. And actually, that was not Heidi's fault. Heidi was not the cusser at that point in time, but you know, <laughs> it's just converted to other things at the no. So anyhow, okay. Pino. Let's talk about Pino. Um, you have some beautiful Pinos. Janice is one of my favorites. And is there a person or a definition behind that name? Or I don't know where it came from. You say Janice, and I think of my mom. Is that her name? Uh-huh. <laughs> Spelled differently, but... Roman got a balance. Is that what it looking is? Looking forward, looking back. Mm-hmm. And it was mm, the A very... little more woo-woo. The God of well, New Beginnings I love and All it. Endings. Yes. And God of New Beginnings and All Endings. It was his first Pinot. It was Jimmy's very first oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. See, these are, this is why these questions are fun. Because I learned something new. I mean, there's this this dragon thing on the on the front of all the bottles too, and you've told me a gazillion times what it's called, and I, for the life of me, can't remember it. Ouroboros. 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 And does that have something to kind of do with it? Because it's chasing its tail. Is that biting its so bite? It's dragon devouring its own tail. So it's the cycle of death, life through death. So continue. It was a tattoo Jimmy had. Is why he originally used it. I don't know why he originally got that tattoo. Mm -mm, But it obviously meant enough to him to use it as his wine label. Yeah. Yeah. I I like it. I mean, it's off, you know, it's beautiful. And the fact that you have it as a huge sign when you walk into the tasting room and obviously it makes it to the labels as well. And it's still part of your kind of your whole thing today. I think it's a great label because it, it can stand the test of time. I don't think this label will ever look dated like sometimes labels begin to get. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you do kind of go through these artistic phases and, you know, whatever. And um, yours are classic and have a very uniqueness to them and define who you are. And I like the woo-woo that has gone. I mean, there's little spots of it. And, I mean, I didn't know Jimmy, obviously. And, um, you know, it's it's nice to kind of see his quips of personality coming in and throughout everything that you guys are still doing. Everybody has their own ideology and take on Pinot. Riesling obviously is kind of, you know, the big thing with Brooks, but what style of Pinot and what is it that you like and try to make it, I guess, to provide or I don't know. I don't know what the right wording of that question is, but everybody has their own take on it. What's your take? <laughs> What's my take? <laughs> um, well, my take would be the that initial approach of blending and keeping everything into small lots so you can get back to style without manipulating the wines. We, you know, we have our own estate vineyard, but we buy from a lot of other vineyards. And one of the things that I think is great about all the different wines we make is Chris is very loyal to our growers and wanting to make single vineyards that reflect them and not necessarily his style of wine, but really reflect what clones they decided to plant and, you know, make sure that they reflect the fruit that we actually brought in the door, where often you find single vineyard pinots and they all taste the same because the winemaker's trying to make them in the style that they like to drink. And so I think it's um, it's an amazing thing that we do in a 
control thing that you've never had about being able to let truly let a place express the style and itself itself and it I love it because it gives a lot of variety too to our customers you know we have so many we're going to find one for everybody but I also think that our growers see that we make different expressions and that we really and it's out of our love for them and and the love that they've given their plants and their land and that they work with us as partners and true expression of terroir going back to that kind of thought that every place has its own flavor, personality, attitude, and whatever. And I think you're right. A lot of people try to make it their own style and kind of what they like to drink. But, you know, it is nice seeing that you're doing, kind of letting it actually do its own thing and kind of be its own own person, I guess, so to speak. And we also search for clones. I mean, that's one of the reasons we work with a lot of other growers is because we want to have that nice, not only small lots, but different clones across those lots because every clone contributes something different to a finished wine. So I don't know. We probably get nine different clones of Pinot now throughout the valley. Keep finding new little things that we haven't had. We picked up some Mount Eden recently that we haven't worked with before. And what is that? It's a clone. Uh, a Mount clone. Eden? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Oh, it sounds like a place. So, and got a little bit of quarry now. And it's it's just fun having a nice variety of different things. And like she talked about with the vineyards, it, it is important to make sure that, you know, it's not my favorite six barrels out of the vineyard. And it is important to show that, you know, they decidedly planted all these different clones for a reason and they spent the same amount of time farming everything. So I don't want to come in and say, this is my favorite block and this is what I want to represent your entire vineyard. But then again, it's also nice to have wines like the Janus where that's more of a cellar wine for us. That's a wine that we get to pick all these different pieces and put together that does actually hit our palate. This is the wine that we like the best made how we want it to be made in the style that we want it to be made in. And everything is done kind of to suit us. Whereas all those other wines, we really, again, try to work with showing off other people's. The place. So Janice is more of a blend. Janice is, yeah. It's usually predominantly estate. And then the idea is to find things that the estate doesn't have, aromatics, characteristics, funkiness. Always try to find something with a little mushroom, a little forest floor, a little earthiness in it. And that's important to layer in on top of the estate for that Janus. Because again, it's kind of trying to hit that cellar palette for us. I did not know that. See, I learn all kinds of new things when I start asking questions and we start drinking wine. It's amazing. The more (laughs) wine we drink, the The more more we learn. Yes. I do want to shift over to the estate um, and actually talk about the winery because it is beautiful. You've done a beautiful job designing a very hospitable place. And we were talking about this a little bit more as far as like the tasting experience at Brooks. You don't walk in and you just get handed a board and call it good. You have so many more elements to what coming to taste at Brooks is about. And then also some of the other experiences that you offer for your guests and whatnot. And by the way, you have probably some of the most epic pickup parties um, for club members too. (laughs) Before I forget to say that, you are always doing something just so super cool and just kind of out of the ordinary. Oh, that's great. Well, that's we do strive to be that, I think, on the hospitality side. When we were looking at building and designing this building, I just have a personal dislike of the standard tasting room. When you walk in, there's a bar, there's nowhere to sit, there's a couple people behind the bar, they want you to taste, join their club, buy some wine and leave. Um, there's even, it's, there's a term in the industry called the 20 minute rule that that's all they want their customers to be in there. 
And I thought, I don't want to manage that. I don't want to own that. I don't want to build that. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to build a place that I want to hang out in. Um, so I really took more of a like a lounge approach, bar stools at our bar, table side service from the very beginning. I think that's super important. A choice of flights. Do you want white? Do you want red? Do you want mixed? Always providing a lot of choice. Really well-trained people in terms of the story and the passion and wine knowledge. So our everyday experience is, is all of that. Um, plus, we also offer food to pair with the wines as well, which is a great other reason to come into our place because we're far away from Salem and McMinnville and there's nowhere to really get food on the hill. And it's great. And your chef is um, Norma always has a changing menu every month. Yep. There's the diehard standards that are always there every month with the Brussels sprouts and the adult flavored popcorn, which I love, and the pocket boards and charcuterie and stuff, which always have a little bit of a change. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's month to month, week to week, whenever, you know, different supplies come in, but they're always really, really beautiful and well done. Yeah. And then we do, we do a lot of events, a lot of wine dinners. We do a concert series in the summer. I'm always trying to find, we do gardening classes with our gardener, like trying to find just a wide array of things that would interest the broadest group of people, right? Kind of having something for everyone, which really goes back to Jimmy, having wines like the Amicus that he always wanted on your table, you know? We offer a couple of other experiences. We have we have three right now. We have a really fun one that we started pre-COVID where you get into an RTV and you go out to our estate vineyard and you go to the different blocks and you get to taste the finished wine from the different blocks that that fruit came from and really have a deeper understanding of the life cycle of a vine. We do an elevated tasting where we pull out library wines. We have all of our wines from every vintage all the way back. And so we like to see where they're showing and pull those out and teach people about vintage variation or vineyard differences, soil differences, kind of really kind of geek out on a deeper level. And that's the elevated experience. And then we're just going to launch next, probably in October, back to our How to Taste Wine 101 class. So important. So important because I think, you know, people are intimidated by maybe an elevated tasting or doing something or not wanting to ask questions. So we really make it accessible, approachable, good gateway opportunity to have a better understanding of what you're tasting. I think just that little bit of education is so important, just not only on the tasting of wine. I mean, we have this conversation and argument all the time. My husband does not understand why you swirl wine. He doesn't understand why you put it through a decanter. He just wants to, and he doesn't understand why I smell it. And, you know, and I think now it's a habit. I always smell stuff before I put it in my mouth. I smell water sometimes. Yeah, yeah I'll I do. Like, I, oh, yes. And yeah. I'll, I'll catch myself just kind of swirling, swirling and playing with a glass for, for no reason. Obviously, I don't really do that with sparkling wine because it swirls the bubbles right out of it. But it is so important. And then, you know, you kind of move into the pairing of wine, which people find so intimidating. And that was one class. I don't think you're doing it now, but I did it several years ago with a little private event that I did up there. And it was so incredibly mind-blowing. Like you think, oh yeah, red wine goes with steak and white wine goes with fish. But when you really start getting into the spices and the berries and the whatever else was on that plate, it was kind of like this whole sensory board thing. The cinnamon and the red wine was just, it was like, I mean, it was just, it was amazing what it did. And since then, I a little bit more geeky about it. I love finding good acid that goes with great, you know, great food. I like to cook. And so it definitely is something that I've been able to take home. And, you know, when we do pull out a bottle of wine, I'm like, okay, well, I'm making Thai food tonight. Okay, what's going to go with that? Mm, no, I don't think that red, maybe this. And I'm wrong sometimes too, but when in doubt, pull out a beer. 
Because <laughs> beer will go with anything. <laughs> so almost. That's why we serve beer at Brooks yes. too. Beer and cider. <laughs> that is a very good point because I hear that all the time mm-hmm. um, that I don't like wine. I'm like, okay, well, great. You know, you don't have to drink water when you go up there. A lot of these wineries will be serving beer and cider and you guys all have both. And you have a coffee machine. I think you still yes. have the coffee oh, yes. machine. Yes. Yes. So there's a really kind of something for everybody up there. And you have a beautiful outdoor area. The gardens are stunning. And are the chickens still around? Oh, yeah. And the chickens. They have a new home. Oh, I have not seen the new home. There's nine new babies. You haven't been out there since the new babies? Nope. Gotta go see them. Nope. Even though I'm a neighbor, I am busy and I just don't come (laughs) as often as I should. But I will say that it is so great because I have gotten drunk up there a time or two on accident (laughs) and it's an easy walk home. So (laughs) when in doubt, I can walk home. (laughs) So so, um, being a responsible insurance person, you know, I should probably not drive. But anyhow, so it's so great up there um, as far as all the experiences and what you've done. And for me, the big thing with wine and wine tasting rooms is that feeling of welcome when you walk in. Because I was highly turned off by the wine industry before I started doing what I was doing because it was that bar mentality. And I was so overwhelmed when I walked in. I didn't know what direction to go, what to ask for. And you guys have kind of solved that problem. Nice work. And you do see the winemaker event, you know, kind of wandering around every once in a while. (laughs) Um, Sometimes there's a dog in tow. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love. I love Stella, right? Uh Yeah. Okay. There we go. I had a Stella too. Yours is a lot more friendly than mine. (laughs) Mine was an (laughs) asshole. Beautiful, loving dog. Very sweet, but kind of an (laughs) a-hole. One thing that we have missed in this whole conversation is Paco, Pascal. Yeah, we probably should mention him because he um, he's kind of part of the whole story. And I believe he was the youngest winery owner in the, in the world. world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes we make these proclamations and like, yeah. I'm going to say it until someone tells me I'm wrong. <laughs> You've been on video, audio, right? TV Which shows. We're yeah. the only winery in the world to be a B Corp, Demeter certified, a member of Ecology, and a member of 1% for the Planet. Like, And I'm just going to keep saying it until somebody... I don't know. That's a really good resume. Right. I somebody would have to really be um have a lot of audacity to call you on that, I think. But right. there's always those that wish to be that person. Yeah. So So Paco. Mm-hmm. He's now 26, graduated from UC Santa Cruz with a couple of degrees, came and worked harvest for us, and then followed his French girlfriend back to her homeland and has been living in Paris ever since. This sounds very reminiscent of his dad. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Because didn't Jimmy have like an English degree or some sort of literature? Communication. Communication. Okay. And that's kind of what Pascal's been doing too is like writing literature, English. Those are hobbies. Hobbies? Yep. Okay. He's farming. Oh, I uh, did not know he was farming. Yeah. He's been working for a group of American restaurateurs who have three, two restaurants and one event space in Paris and then a big farm outside of Paris. So he gets on his bike every day, rides to the train, takes the train to his stop, gets back on his bike, rides it to the farm, and farms all day. It's a very European way of doing things. Right? Yes. And I bet he loves it. He does. Yeah. How incredible. Well, are we missing anything? One thing. Okay. Let's hear it. 2023 is a very exciting year for us because it will be the 25th anniversary of the winery and the 50th anniversary of our estate vineyard. That, those are big numbers. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty incredible numbers. Lots so, of celebrating next year. I'm like, okay, so what's what's on the schedule? 
Well, there's going to be a, a riverboat party in Portland. Oh, that's right. We talked about that yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Going to be a riverboat party. I'm going to go on a country tour and go see my customers where they're at and my wine club members. I offered to come. <clears throat> Don't forget that. I will. Yes. I'll even pay I'll even pay my way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to have a big dinner at the winery too. And then we're going to have a little planting party where we had some vines from a little bad driver take out some of our vines. So we're mm, I was it. noticing those yesterday, yeah. actually. I'm like, hmm. Did <clears throat> invite vine? our community to come have a planting party. We have some other rows that we are going to replant to, some stuff in the garden, and have a nice little toast to celebrate our anniversaries. That's exciting. And I know the one thing that we did forget to mention was the chocolate oh. and wine out in Portland, because mm-hmm. that's a whole nother experience. It is. I, was, I actually broke out my chocolate yesterday. Did you? I've been hoarding it since it came in my box. I don't even remember what box it came in, but I dumped it out on the counter. I'm like, oh my God, there's like eight bars in here. So, you know, it's the spirit of collaboration. Um, we worked with a lot of different companies to showcase their products during COVID. We did a lot of virtual events. And one of the companies that I kept ending up doing events with over and over again was Woodblock Chocolate and learned so much about chocolate. I knew nothing about chocolate and all the parallels of the way they approach chocolate making that we do with our winemaking. And they have a hospitality space in their manufactory in Portland and did not want to reopen it after COVID. And so we thought we're good at hospitality and why not do like a true vetted wine and chocolate tasting experience. So it's called Bonami. It's at the Woodblock location on Northeast 17th and Broadway. And it's open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And there's three different wine and chocolate experiences and even a beer and chocolate experience. Ooh, and no reservations required. No reservations required there. Yes. (laughs) At the estate, you need reservations still. Yes. Make that very clear. Okay. I think we have pretty much wrapped up a lot. We've gotten a lot done in an hour. Janie, Chris, Again, Janie, thank you for being a guinea pig and being back on the show for our reboot. And we'll probably do more of these later. I'm sure I'll call you again when I have the next crazy idea and go, hey, Janie, I need another another friend request, please. I'm up for it. Yep. Well, thank you both. Adore you both so very much. And I'm very grateful that you joined us again. So, and thanks for bringing the wine. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. Chat soon. <laughs> <laughs>